Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to this week's Core Concepts brought to you by the EM Guidewire team from Carolina's Medical Center EM Group. Today we have myself, Russell Tregonis, Sean Murray, Chris Gardner, and Natalie Wood. And we're going to be talking about nasotracheal intubation. So today's episode is sponsored by Tongues. Tongues. Bigger isn't always better. Tongues. Thank you, guys. So today, like I said, we're going to be talking about a really sexy topic, nasotracheal intubation. Now, this is a rare procedure in the emergency department, partially because of how good we are at other mechanisms of managing the airway. Whether it's our own skills or all the new video-assisted devices, we are very good at getting oral airways. But every once in a while, a time will arise, and this can save a patient's life. So nothing's more EM than that. So let's start talking about it. Russ, you are so right. This is such a sexy, sexy kind of procedure. It makes me feel like a real powerful woman. But what are the indications for this type of procedure? So typically what we think of is a patient that has angioedema. So the anterior oropharynx is just not going to let us in. So we need to go the nasotracheal route. Another thing that we think about is if somebody has a mechanical obstruction, so say they just had a jaw surgery and their jaw is wired shut, well, it's going to be a little bit difficult to go through the anterior oropharynx to actually obtain this airway. Similarly, like with any other procedure, there's going to be times where this is not a good option for us or contraindications. Uh, In this particular procedure, if somebody's got a broken nasal bone or other facial fracture, you're not going to want to be putting a lot of pressure on those bones. So uh, you'll want to avoid a nasal tracheal intubation in that scenario. Also, if the patient doesn't have communicating upper and lower airways, uh, if they've had a laryngectomy, this is not going to be a good option for you. All right, so to summarize, nasotracheal intubation, when are we going to think about this? This is going to be any time where we have some sort of mechanical obstruction to the anterior oropharynx where we just can't get in through the mouth. Times where we don't want to do this is if there's any sort of uh, facial fracture or nasal bone fracture, or if they've had a laryngectomy, it's hard to do a nasotracheal intubation and go through a larynx if there isn't one. Well said. Very well said. But let's go ahead and let's take this to a case rather than just talking about it in a theoretical sense. So let's say we've got a 51-year-old guy. We get the call from medic. He's just been having more difficulty breathing. Maybe he says he feels like his tongue is swelling up, his lips feel numb, but he's been on this new blood pressure med for a little bit of time now. He can't tell you what blood pressure med it is because they never can, but let's just say he's been on a blood pressure medicine and now he's endorsing some swelling of his mouth. Now the guy rolls into a front room because we obviously get concerned anytime we hear this and we notice he has a fat blue tongue that's sticking out of his mouth to the point that he's just having a muffled voice. We can't understand anything. Natalie, could you give us an impression of what his voice would sound like? Very well said. It's beautiful. So what are we going to do for this patient? So I think step zero here is something we're going to do with all of our sick patients. We want to get access. We want to get them hooked up to the monitor. So IVO2 monitor right away. We want to load the boat, call for backup. Wherever your shop is, you probably have a protocol for for, uh, concerning airways. Here we call a code airway. So whatever it is, you want to get the right people on board early. I totally agree, Chris. And you're doing an amazing job as a new second year. Load that boat. So another thing you want to consider for the patient is positioning. They may already have themselves in a position that is the best for their airway. So probably sitting up, maybe leaning a little bit forward because this will help kind of drop their tongue out of the way and let them ventilate and oxygenate easily. So you want to reproduce this for the patient. I guess after that, physically examine this patient. You want to examine their mouth, really see what is their malampati score. Can you see anything in the posterior oropharynx at all? 
and then examine the nose. You want to look up in each nostril and make sure that you don't see any obstruction or perhaps a septal deviation. And you'll also want to examine the patient's neck. You want to see what their anatomy looks like there because you may need to correct this patient if you don't have success with the nasotracheal intubation. No, that's a great point, Natalie, because we have to remember with these patients, we're doing this fancy nasotracheal intubation because we don't think we can intubate them orally. If we're failing there, our only option is going to be a surgical airway. We have to be ready. We have to have, like you said, Chris, the right manpower and the right equipment if we need to convert this to a surgical airway. That being said, we're hoping to avoid the surgical airway. And in order to do that, we need to prep the patient and give ourselves uh, the best chance at success. We want to achieve a couple of different things before we get started with this procedure. Number one, we want to make sure we have proper anesthesia. Number two, we want to vasoconstrict the blood vessels in the nasal part of the airway. Number three, you can consider using something like glycopyrrolate to limit the amount of secretions that you're going to encounter during the procedure. Anesthesia is probably one of the most important things here. Uh, the way that we choose to do things here is with a cocktail of medicines. We'll use 4% lidocaine uh, as well as Afrin. I like to mix that up in maybe a kidney basin, get a 10cc syringe and pull up 5cc's of 4% lidocaine and 5cc's of Afrin. We use an atomizer here that you can hook on right onto the end of your syringe, put it in the patient's nair, and ask them to give you a good breath in through the nose while you give them a good squirt into the back of their nose. That's going to accomplish both things for you. Hopefully it'll constrict the blood vessels and give you good anesthesia. Another option, if this is something that you have in your shop, is 5% liquid cocaine. You can do the exact same thing. Put it in a 10cc syringe, put an atomizer in, and give them a squirt in the back of the nose. So, Sean, I've actually heard cocaine is always the right thing to use. Is that correct? In a professional setting. <laughs> well said, well said. All right, so now that we've got our delicious nasal cocktail atomized in the uh, nasopharynx, we're going to prep even further. And this time we're going to get our nasopharyngeal airway, our NPA, or our nasal trumpet, as you might refer to them as. And we're going to uh, basically coat this in viscous lidocaine, okay? And my mnemonic here is LOL, or lots of lidocaine. Also can be lots of lube. It's very versatile. So after we've got our nasopharyngeal airway appropriately coated with our viscous lidocaine, we're going to advance that in to the posterior nasopharynx. So once we have our first nasal trumpet in, we're going to basically increase our size like you would for a sound, uh, basically to dilate our nasopharyngeal space and make the tract for our uh, nasotracheal tube to go in. Uh, some of us will start with a six and then go up uh, hopefully to an eight or the largest size you can comfortably fit into the nose. And that's a good point to bring up, Chris, because our nasal trumpets actually are going to be sized the same as our ET tubes. A six has the same internal diameter as a 602. You just want to keep in mind that those nasal trumpets are going to be very compressible, as in a 80 nasal trumpet might be in theory the same size as an 80 tube, but it will compress a little bit, so it won't be as big. Still, I like to dilate all the way up to an 80 nasal trumpet. That way, you're just giving your tube the most chance of success, as well as great anesthesia to the nose itself. All right, so in this case, bigger is better. So you guys did a great job of anesthetizing the nasopharynx as well as the oropharynx, and it's time to gather up your tools. So obviously, you're going to need a ET tube. So you can go ahead and get a 7.0 ET tube as well as a 6.5. Like Russell was saying, you may be able to conceivably fit a larger tube in the nasopharynx, but you definitely want to be able to get this tube down through the nasopharynx and into the trachea. So sometimes a bit smaller is going to work for you better. The other thing you're going to want to grab is your fiber optic scope, although there's not really any fiber optics in it anymore. Am I right? Oh, you're so smart, Natalie. I know a lot of stuff. And you'll also want to get suction ready and also preparation for a possible oral intubation because sometimes you might have to go through the oral route. And even if we aren't going completely through the oral route, sometimes manipulating the tongue with a DL blade, something like that, might help your visualization even if you are still going through the nose. 
Now, I know we were talking about cocaine in previous steps, but here comes the really fun part, actually loading the tube into the patient's nose. Like with any procedure, positioning is really important, both of the patient, as Natalie described, but also of the tube. You want to make sure that the bevel of the tube is pointed towards the patient's septum, and then slowly advance the tube. You need to use a little bit of pressure to get this thing back, but you really don't want to be hurting the patient. If the patient is having a lot of pain, uh, you may need to go back to one of your previous steps and use some more medicines to numb them up. Wait a sec, Sean. You're putting the tube in right now? Yeah, the camera's not even in yet. That doesn't make any sense. I feel like that's how I've always been taught. You load the tube up on the scope and the camera in the back, and then you put the camera in first, and then you scooch the tube over, all that. Uh, Scooching the tube is the traditional method, that's certain. Uh, But clearly you guys haven't been paying attention to Dr. Gibbs. Who's Dr. Gibbs? Who's Dr. Gibbs? He's only a legend. Our very own legend. So Dr. Gibbs, our chairman here, obviously runs his own difficult airway course and is kind of world-renowned for it. And he's actually got a lot of great tips about this. So Sean, could you walk through that method once more? Yeah, absolutely. Traditional method is going to be to advance the camera through the nose and then uh, the tube over that. Uh, But there's a couple of problems that you might encounter using this strategy. You might not be able to fit your tube through the nose. Once you have a great view of the cords and you go to pass your tube, maybe you haven't dilated far enough. That would be kind of embarrassing. So you rock it out, get your endoscope through the cords, and then you can't put your tube in. That sucks. It's frowned upon. Sometimes you can be too big. We eliminate that problem with our strategy here. By passing the tube first, you ensure that you're going to be able to get it through the smallest part of the airway, which is the most difficult part of the procedure. In addition, this helps to clear out any of that gel or lube you had put in the nose earlier to give your camera a much cleaner view into the back of the throat. So, once you've got the tube in, you put the camera in through the tube until you can see the cords. Now, the, this is a great way we've walked through everything so far, but let's be honest. Regardless of how much cocaine or how much other medicine we might have used for this patient, they're probably not going to enjoy this procedure. So let's take a quick time out and talk about other ways we can medicate this patient. Now, just like any intubation we're doing, what's our favorite med team? Ketamine. 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 Vitamin K. Okay, so we're going to be using ketamine for this, just like we would for pretty much any of our other intubations, but maybe we're not going to be slamming our ketamine like we would with RSI. Here we want to use ketamine to kind of help relax them and help them tolerate this procedure a little bit better. So instead of immediately pushing your 1.5 mix per kg of ketamine, maybe push a 0.5 mix per kg or maybe even a half dose of your normal induction dose of ketamine to help the patient tolerate the procedure more. Now, we don't want to slam them with the full dose up front just in case this causes any respiratory suppression, vocal cord spasms, nausea, vomiting. All those bad things are not going to be ideal in this very delicate airway, but at least getting some ketamine on board might help this patient tolerate it better. Gotcha, Russ. So we're talking sub-dissociative dose ketamine here. We're not going for the full induction dose to start. As Sean walked us through, we've got our nasotracheal tube uh, through the back of the posterior nasopharynx, and now we're advancing our camera through At this point, if you do this method, you should be, once you get your camera through the tube, you should have a pretty great view of the cords at this point, and you should be a couple centimeters away. So you'll advance your scope down through the vocal cords. So what if you don't have that perfect view you're describing, Chris? What if we put our camera into the scope and we're just seeing a bunch of mucousy looking tissue? Any ideas for how to adjust? So you can always pull back the tube a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes if we're just seeing a bunch of tissue back there, we might actually be a little bit deep, maybe even in the esophagus. So let's pull back our ET tube a little bit and see if that helps us visualize the structures we're looking for, namely the vocal cords. Okay, so typically when I'm intubating a patient, I'm going to give them ketamine or any other induction agent and then paralyze them. But it's a little bit different when we're doing a nasotracheal intubation. So We've done all of this great work to anesthetize the airway, and now we have the patient calmed down. 
and we're peeking right at the cords. Paralyzing the patient plays a different role in this type of intubation. Typically, we will do this to help with the patient that is agitated or maybe moving around a bit, or maybe their normal respirations are just causing too much movement for me to be able to get the camera through the cords. So at this point, I'm right there, almost at the entrance to the cords, and I can paralyze the patient and finish the intubation. Another reason that you may want to do this is if you have vocal cord spasm, if you paralyze the patient, that's going to resolve. That's typically the reason that we will paralyze patients in a nasotracheal intubation. Otherwise, if you're able to, advance the camera, advance your tube, and then paralyze the patient. Yeah, all we're trying to do is secure the airway before we paralyze the patient or be at the step where we are about to secure that airway. We never want to push paralytics if we're unable to visualize it, however, because we'd be kind of back at square one again. We'd have a patient now that's paralyzed and we don't have a secured airway. Just like Chris said, we want to make sure we have our ET tube in the right position. We can visualize the cord. And like Natalie said, either use the paralytic to help you advance that camera the last few centimeters, or we don't even need it at all if you're able to advance it without any difficulty. Last thing I want to do is lose the airway. We're sedated. We're paralyzed. We just did a bunch of great work to get this tube in the right place. I'm going to hang on to that sucker until it's all the way secured. We can do this in a number of different ways. You can tape it down with all the tape that you have in your department, or you can even choose to suture it to your nair. We should put the Blakemore tube helmet on them. I love that idea because we need more patients leaving the emergency department in football helmets. 100% Natalie, I love it. So guys, this has been a great discussion going through what is a rare, complicated, but incredibly rewarding procedure and hopefully a good review for everyone. Now, let's take a second and summarize those core concepts, top to bottom. All right, core concepts of nasotracheal intubation. Number one, indications. The patient probably has angioedema or some other mechanical obstruction like maybe a recent jaw surgery that is obstructing the anterior oropharynx. Contraindications. Maybe a patient has a facial fracture or they've had a laryngectomy. So once we decide this procedure is indicated, we're going to get everything ready. That means IV, O2, monitor, get access, get the patient hooked up, get the right people on board, your anesthesiologist, your surgeon, whoever you have in your shop to help you out. Obviously, let's examine the patient, look at the mouth, look at their nose, look at their neck. Make sure the patient is sitting upright, both to help him breathe as well as help us identify those landmarks. Next, we have to prep the patient. We want to achieve anesthesia, vasoconstriction, and limit our secretions. So use medicines like Afrin, 4% lidocaine, cocaine, or glycopyrrolate to limit the secretions. And now we're going to put in our nasopharyngeal airway, sizing that up to the biggest size possible and using LOL, lots of lidocaine. Or lots of lube. Next, we're going to gather all of our tools. We want a 7.0 ET tube, a 6.5 ET tube, and we also want to get our scope. And then be prepped for either a surgical airway or a possible oral intubation. Next, I'm going with the Dr. Gibbs method, and I'm loading my tube into the nair, approximately 15 centimeters. Next, make sure to give the patient the right medicines they need. Here, we use ketamine, starting off with half of your normal induction dose and going up from there. Next, we're going to advance our camera, looking for the landmarks that we're prepared to see. If we see things like secretions, other things, and we're not seeing our cords, remember we can back that tube up and make sure we're in the right spot. And once you have a nice view of your cords, maybe you're able to go right through them and intubate the patient. But if their breathing is making it difficult, or if they have laryngospasm or vocal cord spasm, then you can paralyze the patient to assist with your intubation. Lastly, after you've confirmed placement of your tube, hold that sucker down with some tape. And that's how we do a nasotracheal intubation. Thanks, guys. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios in Charlotte, North Carolina, this is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. Seems he out. Also can be lots of lube. It's very versatile. So we're going <laughs> to...
<laughs> Sorry. I like that. <laughs> that stays. <laughs> yeah. Man, everyday life we're learning about right now. <laughs>